All right, got a couple quick announcements for you to keep you in the loop for this week. Uh, we have relaunched Kidtown in a modified form as we are regathering. And after nine months of not gathering, we've had some attrition with our Kidtown volunteers. If you are a Kidtown volunteer and you haven't heard from our team yet, please reach out to us at kidtown at midtowncolumbia.com. Or if you haven't been a volunteer before, but you're interested in helping out with our kids, we make it as simple as we can. You can serve as little as once a month or every other week. And even in our Kidtown family worship, there's a way for you to hear the sermon every Sunday while you still help families and kids. For more information, go to midtowndowntown.com slash kidtown. Secondly, we have got a finance class coming up. If you are in any way struggling with your personal finances, I cannot recommend it highly enough. The class launches January 24th. It's three weeks long. It'll be meeting virtually from 2 to 3.30 p.m. And you can find more information on our main uh, website, midtowndowntown.com. Finally, we are launching a new resource blog called the Midweek Formation. Uh, it is to help you renew your mind and to think like a Christian well in the culture that we live in. Each week, we'll be putting out two to three resources to access the midweek formation, follow us on social media, or sign up for our weekly newsletter. We love you guys. Have a great week. You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning. Another week in dystopian American politics and extremism. I was grieved along with many of you about the activities this week at our state's, at our nation's capital. Uh, I'm praying along with you. And honestly, I'm just glad that this morning we get to get into God's word and talk about his vision for people and humanity and how this whole world was supposed to work. Let's pray and we'll dive in for this morning. Father God, uh, thank you for you. Thank you for who you are, for your wisdom, for your vision, for humanity and a world with no sin as it was designed to be. God, I pray that this morning as we gather, that your word would, would get down into our minds and our hearts, that you would confront us and lead us to repentance wherever we need it, and that ultimately, God, that we would join you in seeking to become the types of people you intended us to become, the type of family that you created us to be. We pray that all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Anybody remember uh, those 90s MasterCard priceless commercials? I think they still make them every now and then. And the first one ever was a dad who took his son to a baseball game, and the narration said, two tickets, $28. Two hot dogs, two popcorns, and two sodas, $18. One autographed baseball, $45. Real conversation with your 11-year-old son? Priceless. There are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. Uh, the heart of the really successful ad campaign was showing how uh, their credit card could help people buy things that weren't really about the things that were about helping the people get something that was actually unpurchasable, something priceless, things like family and real connection. I remember when I was 14 years old, I saw one of these ads and, and I just got 
mad. Uh, the, the ad was essentially a remake of that first one, except this one had a father, a son, and the dad's dad, the grandpa. And the final line in the ad was having three generations of men in your family together for the big game, priceless. And as a 14-year-old, I just, I just got so mad and sad inside. It was like seeing a vision of something that I missed terribly, even though I had never had it. See, because at least in part, I never knew my grandfathers. My mom's dad died when she was two years old. My dad's dad died when I was six months old. Uh, and, and so in part, I, I just missed the idea of being able to go to a baseball game with my dad and his dad. But, but even more than that, uh, my family never lived near any of my extended family. And so honestly, growing up and, and still some today, if I'm totally honest, when I see friends with big, warm, extended, multi-generational families and awesome grandfathers, uh, I have to fight some sinful jealousy and longing in me as I just look at the beauty of it all. And so it was fascinating to me a few years ago when I ran into an article by an African-American mother named Boonmi Laditan. She's an author. She's written a few books, including The Honest Toddler, really funny. Uh, and her article was called, I Miss the Village. I'll read you an excerpt from it. I miss the village I never had. The one with mothers doing the washing side by side, clucking and laughing hysterically, tired in body, but quick in spirit. We'd know each other so well, annoying one another from time to time, but never staying mad long because the truth is we need each other. The children would wake up early as they tend to and run outside. They'd disappear into the field and forest for a day of play as we'd start our sacred work. We'd knead bread side by side, the littles at our feet. It would be impossible to tell whose children belonged to whom. We'd all attend to the group of toddling wee ones. The days would be full of conversation as we expertly flexed a muscle that has since gone weak, the art of listening, quiet empathy in lieu of passive judgment, and when called for, gentle, sincere advice. In our village, our members are our estate and we build them up. Any moms with little ones out there who feel this notion of missing the village that you've never had? A certain kind of loneliness and exhaustion at trying to be all things to your kids all day long with almost no adult interaction whatsoever. Here's, here's our question for today. What is it about the sense of extended family or a village of interconnected families, a multi-generational community sharing life that could make a 14-year-old white boy from South Carolina and a mid-30s African-American mother who lives in Quebec feel the same nostalgic pang down inside of them? Could it possibly be that the way we think about family and deep committed friendships in our society is flawed? The answer, biblically speaking, is a resounding yes. Something is profoundly flawed in our view. Let me show you what I mean by kind of zooming through a thread throughout the scriptures. We'll start in Genesis chapter one, verse 27. It records the first command that God ever gave to humans. It starts like this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, okay, here's the command, the first command ever given by God to people, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
Let me translate that command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The translation is go fill the world with a big extended family village, a multi-generational interwoven family walking in the same kind of Trinitarian self-giving others exalting love-based relationships that Adam talked about last week. God's desire, his mission is to fill the earth with a family of people that love and worship him and love each other out of an overflow of receiving his love. Unfortunately, This beautiful design of a warm, self-giving, others-exalting, loving family, it does not last long. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve reject submission to God's good rule and reign, and they reject his mission of filling the world with a family of people who love and worship him, choosing instead to follow the serpent's temptation and make life all about them. The descent goes quickly from there. In the next chapter, Genesis 4, one of Adam and Eve's kids murders his brother. There's a total breakdown of God's desire and design for the family. Over the next few chapters, evil and chaos grow so rampantly that eventually God decides to flood the world and start over with a whole new family. Enter Noah, seen right. It's interesting that God doesn't pick a focus group of the smartest or most talented people on earth. No, he picks another family. He doesn't give up on the idea of family. It's even more interesting. Do you know what the first thing that God told Noah's family to do was after the flood? His very first command after the flood. It's in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Here's the command be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it's a direct echo of Genesis 1 28. I almost didn't have to change the slide at all. God is still on mission to fill the world with a beautiful, multi-generational, interwoven, self-giving, kid-loving, elder-honoring, warm, rich, joyful, laughter-filled family village of his image-bearing worshipers. And just like with Adam and Eve, it doesn't take long before it goes badly for Noah's family. In the same chapter, Genesis 9, Noah ends up passed out, drunk, and naked in his tent. All kinds of family turmoil erupts from that moment. A few chapters later, it's all gone bad again, and God is starting over again with a new family and a new father in Abraham. Now, I want to show you something fascinating that happens when God establishes his covenant with Abraham to set apart Abraham's family as the family that God intends to work through to create this big extended family village. Starting in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God's talking to Abraham and he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God calls Abraham to leave his homeland and to leave his family of origin. Verse two, God says, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So God promises to Abraham, through your family, I'm gonna fill the world with a big extended family village of worshipers. I'm gonna make you into a huge nation. Verse three, God says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
God's purpose in establishing Abraham's family as his set apart covenant people was not just about Abraham's biological family. It's bigger than that. It's about his biological family being a blessing to all the families of the earth. So I think it's a fascinating little phrase, right? See, there's a way to think about all humanity throughout all of time as nothing more than a collective of families weaving through time. That seems to be some of how God thinks about it based on how he talks to Abraham here. And God's desire, his mission has to do with all of them, all of those families. He wants to work through Abraham's family to bless all the other ones. Let me recap and just make sure that we're catching the thread. God has always been working to fill the earth with a big extended family village of people who love and worship him. Always, hard stop, from the jump and all the way through. That is his mission. He keeps returning to it and starting over with family after family. And this family isn't just about our small biological families. It's about something bigger than that. Now hear me right. It's not not about biological families, but it goes beyond that. God intends to sweep our biological families up into something bigger, up into his family village that will bless and change the whole world, all nations, all races, all tribes, all families. This is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, and then it becomes even more clear in the New Testament. There are tons of examples. I'll just give you one of my favorites from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Peter is writing to the early scattered churches, and he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's God's own possession. Peter is talking to these young early churches who are full of both Jews and Gentiles. And he picks phrases that biblically have been exclusively used to describe the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. God's chosen family nation of people that were gonna be his set apart. Peter uses those phrases and he says, now they apply to all of you. It's not just about that one family. It's about that family blessing all the families and all the nations of the earth. That's who all of us are now. We're all being put together into one new family in the church. The church is God fulfilling his mission to fill the world with an extended family village of people who love and worship him. He's still doing it, what he's always been about. Look at this next part of that phrase in verse nine, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see it? Peter's saying, God's making you this nation, this chosen people. Why? to spread his worship to the ends of the world, to fill the world with people who love and worship God. Keep going, verse 10, I love this part. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I love that phrasing. Look at this. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. I love that idea of somebody's people. We talk about that sometimes, right? Like, who are your people? These are my people. We oftentimes call our family that. Those are my people, my wife, my kids. 
We've talked about this so many times throughout the years, but, but I just want to, it, it goes without, it's worth saying again, that when Jesus saves people, when he shows us our sinfulness, our inability to save ourselves, to make us right with God, to live the life that God designed us to live, when he draws us to himself and shows us our need for him to die on the cross as a sacrifice in our place, when he births that faith in us, that trust, that repentance, he saves us as individuals, but he saves us into a family. He saves us into God's adopted family. Jesus makes us a people. In other words, he invites us to come have a seat at God's dinner table. It's a big table, but you've got a seat at it if you're a Christian. He invites us to be at God's family meals and gatherings for the rest of eternity. He invites us to come play spades and to listen and tell the old family stories and to laugh deeply as we sit around the warmth of the fire in God's hearth. Now, I'm a real visual learner. So I came up with this chart a couple of years ago to display simply what we've been talking about this whole time. God's design for families and for church family, this, this new people that he is putting together in Jesus. It's, it's nothing super profound. Uh, I've sh shared the family chart before back in the Life of David series, but I wanted to look at it again, okay? This is the chart, and it is God's design, his intended design for families. It's got three generations here. You've got the grandparents. We could keep going up with the great-grandparents and the great-great-grandparents, but in general, most families tend to have three living generations at one time, three or four. And then you see this flow down from grandparents to parents to kids. This was God's design, that his love and his wisdom and his grace would flow down from one generation to the next in this beautiful cascading waterfall of goodness where grandparents are supporting parents who are raising kids to know and love the Lord, to, to wrap themselves around his Trinitarian self-giving others exalting love. The, the picture, and when families, when healthy families operate like this, there's this incredible stability and joy and a confidence that comes from it. Parents get to be a little bit less overwhelmed because they have great support as they pour themselves out into their kids. Uh, single people in these kinds of families know that they are loved and they have a place and a role, whether they ever have a spouse or a kid or not. No matter how old they are, no matter what cultural expectations are, you are part of the family and you are loved by God and you are loved by us. You have a place, you have a role. Kids in these kinds of families tend to flourish. They thrive. They tend to have the stability and warmth, this energy and this mischief that just adds some joy and laughter to all of it. And the exact same thing that God designed for biological families, it also is a good chart to show us his design for church family. It's the same picture. In most churches, you find roughly three, maybe four generations. And God's intent in the church family was that his love and his wisdom and his grace would pour down from one generation to the next, that each generation would proclaim the excellencies of God, his goodness, his grace, specifically in the cross, and that we would grow together into this multi-generational extended family, telling the old family stories of God's faithfulness from one generation to the next, that, that churches should always be full of kids adding laughter and energy and a little bit of mischief. 
But parents and married couples in the middle generation in the church are buoyed with this warm, loving support from above as they go about the hard work of raising the next generation. That the elders in the church are honored, that they're not put out to pasture, that they're not looked down on as those who don't have much life to live now, that they're those who are looked up to as those with the most wisdom, the most experience, the most faithfulness of following God for a long time. Single in the church family should be just like single people in, in biological families. They should know that they're loved and welcomed and they have a role to play whether they ever get married or not. That's how it's supposed to be. And this chart, go back, this chart uh, is it's pretty beautiful, right? I mean, it's almost, almost painfully beautiful to look at and think about it. We long for this. This is what we were all made for. So what's the problem? The problem is we all know this is not the reality that any of us have lived in our lives. The, probably, the problem is that reality in a sinful broken world looks more like this. There's a mixture with, with some of God's love and wisdom and grace pouring down through families over time, but there's also a mixture of, of this red, this sin, this pain and foolishness from one generation to the next. Instead of the beautiful blue cascading waterfall, there's a mixture. We've all got some purple in our lives. Just like all the families we talked about in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, it goes bad for all of them. God made us to be part of a multi-generational, self-giving, others-exalting, intergenerational family village that lasts forever, but sin keeps breaking down what God designed. And in one way, don't hear me wrong, because you could think that I just oversimplified everything. Oh, sin's the problem. Of course, that's what you always say. But, but that would indicate to me that you don't understand how complicated of a problem sin is. And so to help you see how complicated of a problem this chart is, I want to break it down into three aspects of the problem, three aspects of why we aren't all joyfully living in the cascading waterfall of God's beautiful design for a big, loving, extended family village that we all long for, but it seems so elusive. We can't quite wrap our fingers around it. There's three aspects. We'll start with number one. Number one is the historical aspect. There's a historical aspect to the problem because we all inherit pain and sin and brokenness through the chart. Go back to the chart, all right? If you're a parent, if you're a kid, whoever you are, if you're a grandparent, you have inherited some wounds. You've inherited some pain. You've inherited some foolishness. And we love to act in the West like we are autonomous individuals just charting our own course and captaining our own ships. But the problem is you aren't just a you. You are a you, but you're also more than that. You are also who you came from. Pastor and author Pete Scazzaro says it like this, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. And, and the key over time is to get more and more of Jesus down into our bones for him to rewrite whatever red we have inherited. So our biological families are supposed to be our greatest source of warmth and support. You see it on uh, talent shows like America's Got Talent all the time where a family who's like rejected their kid, but then finally they come around to supporting them in their crazy dream and everyone just cheers and cheers because we know that's how it's supposed to be. Families are supposed to be our greatest source of strength and warmth and support. And instead they often become the source of some of our greatest pain 
We get wounds instead of warmth. We get scars instead of strength. So for some of us, those wounds are really obvious emotional or physical scars. Your, your families did some terrible things to hurt you. It could have been dad, it could have been mom, it could have been some extended family or, or a sibling. Or maybe your family, it's not that they did something bad to you, it's that they didn't do really important things that you needed them to do and they just weren't there and they just didn't say the things that kids need to hear. For others, Maybe it's not quite as extreme, but there were just normal patterns in your family that aren't biblical and aren't particularly healthy, but you've inherited them as a normal pattern for how life is supposed to be lived. And and for others of us, it's more circumstantial than than active. It's almost more passive. Your, Your family went through some kind of deep loss and suffering, and they just struggled to handle it well. And it's not that they did anything bad to you or that it's anyone's fault. It's just that your wounds are collateral damage of living in a broken world. And your family shares them, but sometimes they're just hard to deal with. Either way, we all inherit wounds. From a historical perspective, there's red in our ledger that we have received from the passing of generations, from our parents, from our siblings, from extended family. Uh, Sometimes this, we're not just talking biological family, we're talking big spiritual family as well. So for some of you, your wounds aren't from your biological family, they're from church. You had terrible experiences, or someone in the name of Jesus did not love you well, but instead they harmed you viciously. And it's really hard and harmful. It's it's affected and shaped you in a profound way. That's the historical aspect. Here's the second aspect to the problem. There's also a cultural aspect to the problem in the chart. Culturally speaking, we live in one of the most individualistic cultures that the world has ever known. COVID quarantine did not invent the problem of American isolation and loneliness. In many ways, it just put a spotlight on the problem that was already there and how unwell most of us were set up to handle a quarantine and a pandemic. And you could summarize the problem like this. Over time, our dinner tables just keep shrinking. Fewer and fewer people live near their extended family. Parents are having less kids over time. Hospitality is at an all-time low, which in quarantine, probably wise, but outside of it, not wise at all. Our normal pattern in our culture is to go home to our small number of people, to eat dinner at our small dinner table, and to watch Netflix with our small number of people, go to sleep, rinse, cycle, and repeat. Uh, Writer and reporter David Brooks talks about this aspect of our culture in a really powerful and poignant article called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. And that's kind of like a really aggressive title and and don't overread into what he's saying here, but listen to what he has to say. He says, this is the story of our times. The story of the family, once a dense cluster of many siblings and extended kin, fragmenting into ever smaller and more fragile forms. The initial result of that fragmentation, the nuclear family, didn't seem so bad. But then, because the nuclear family is so brittle, the fragmentation continued. In many sectors of society, nuclear families fragmented into single-parent families, single-parent families into chaotic families or no families. If you want to summarize the changes in family structure over the past century, the truest thing to say is this, we've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. We've made life better for adults, but worse for children. 
Now that's the cultural aspect of the problem on our family structure broad over society. What about how it's impacted our churches? Now I don't have time. I'll get into it on the midweek podcast. But either way, the the truth is there's a historical aspect to the breakdown of God's design for this big extended family village. There's There's a cultural aspect to the breakdown of God's design for for big extended family village in our lives. And there's a sneaky third aspect that may actually be the worst of all, but it's probably not what you expect. The third aspect is a personal aspect of the problem. The problem of the red in the chart is not just historical and it is not just cultural. The problem is you. God's beautiful waterfall design can't flow beautiful and blue and freely and graciously the way it's supposed to because it keeps running into sinful people, people like you and me and all of us. We can't get the red out of the chart because the red is in us and we keep doing things to perpetuate more red into the chart. So let's talk about the cultural aspect for a second, because it's really easy to sit back and to kind of self-righteously think, oh, that sad, isolated, lonely culture, tisk tisk, you know, poor form, poor form. That's not what God made you guys for. But then Monday rolls around and it's time for life group. And you are the one who goes, I mean, like I could go and, and I should go, but the bachelor's on or uh, Monday night football's on. I don't care, pick your poison, either way. And you make the decision. You text the group, uh, sorry guys, bit of a cough, <coughs> might be COVID shrug emoji guy, right? Like who knows, can't be there, it's terrible. Just uh, impossible to hold accountable text message for why you can't be good friends tonight. The cultural movement towards smaller and more fragmented and more fragile families and friendships and communities has moved that direction because in part, it appeals to something in our self-centered and sinful nature. We value our freedom and our comfort and our entertainment more than real life flesh and blood other people who are made in God's image. And so to push back on the cultural aspect of the problem, we are going to have to find ourselves repenting early and often, regularly on Monday nights. And the same thing that's true of the cultural aspect is also true with the historical aspect. The wounds and baggage that you have inherited, the norms that do not line up with God's design, but feel totally obvious and self-evident to you we end up becoming hurt people who hurt people if we do not realize how to deal with the history that we've inherited, heal from it, and move forward together. Now, so I'll just give you a couple quick examples. So your mom wasn't trustworthy and, and she abandoned you. It's terrible. And so now you're the person who doesn't really trust anyone and also you're the person who can read minds. And so if anyone hurts you, or if you can just tell that they're like thinking about hurting you or they're about to hurt you, then before you get hurt again, you're going to go ahead and no thanks, I'm out. You hit the eject button and without realizing it, you've become your mom. And you're the one abandoning relationships now because you're so afraid of getting hurt again. 
or um, we'll flip it to the opposite. Your, your dad was really passive and he never spoke up for himself or he never really said much of anything that needed to be said. And so you said, well, I'm not gonna follow in his footsteps. I'm gonna do the opposite. I'm always gonna tell the truth. I'm not gonna be that. And so you always tell the truth. You always say everything that comes to your mind, no matter how rude or hurtful it might be, but it's never your fault. It's their fault for being too sensitive because you're just telling it like it is. As, as opposed to realizing that with maturity comes some nuance and some balance in our communication. You never realize that, yes, your dad was unhealthy, but so are you. You're just a different version of unhealthy. You gotta learn some balance. You gotta learn that for us, we, sometimes we speak the truth in love boldly and courageously. And sometimes we hold our tongues and we use tact and grace in love. And for some of you, it's, it's nothing that extreme. It's just that your parents modeled that the nuclear family was supposed to be a self-contained unit. So they didn't ever ask for help from anybody. And they almost never had anybody over to the home. And so you just kind of grew up learning that was normal. Maybe they even said it to you sometimes. Hey, hey, we don't ask for help. We, we learn how to, how to fix our own problems. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And it's not that anything extreme or evil happened. It's just that you've taken that deep down into your soul as the normal and right way of doing life. And when Jesus says, no, I'm actually knitting you together into a people where you are both going to give help sometimes and need to receive help at other times, you go, oh, I'm uncomfortable with that. And, and in saying all of that, let me just say, I know how badly family wounds can hurt. Now, I know, I, personally, I know how deep they can be, how hard they can be to see and discern and deal with. I know that some of those norms you've inherited, they feel impossible. Some of the cultural pressures that are shaping and molding, it, it, it's water, we're swimming in it. We can't see it around us. And at some point, we have got to deal with the reality that these are the wounds and the baggage and the unhealthy norms that we have received. And we cannot go through the rest of our lives hurting people and saying, well, it's not my fault. It's, it's my mom's fault. And what we have received isn't necessarily our fault, fault, but it is our responsibility to face our past, to heal and to join God in building the beautiful extended family village of worshipers that he intends to fill the world with. It is our responsibility to say, I don't care that this was normal in my family. I don't care that this is normal in our culture. This is not what Jesus calls me to in the Bible. At some point, if we're gonna call ourselves followers of Jesus, we've got to let Jesus have a louder voice in setting our norms than our family of origin or our culture, amen? And so I don't know what you've inherited, but you do. And, and you better know, because if you don't know, then you can't deal with it. And if you can't deal with it, then you can't heal. And if you can't heal, then you can't be part of the solution. So how do we do that? How do we deal with what we've inherited? How do we heal? How do we deal with the problem and start to push back on the red tide in the waterfall? That's part two of the sermon next week. Let's pray. Um, Father God, Thank you that the way it is, is not the way you designed it to be. And God, thank you that the, the family of worshipers that you have always been seeking to fill the world with, you've never given up on that idea. 
And you've blown it wide open in the cross of Jesus to invite all of us into it, no matter where we're coming from, no matter if we had the healthiest biological family or the least healthy biological family ever, no matter what our church experience has been, no matter where we're coming from, God, you have gone out of your way. You have gone to great lengths and great cost to yourself to welcome us back to yourself, to adopt us into your family. Praise you. What incredible excellencies. God, I, I would love for more people in our city to know, for our neighbors to know who you are, for our family members to know your goodness, your unbelievable love. God, I pray that we would all soak in and be redeemed and rewired, that our minds would be renewed and our hearts would be changed in what we love and what we care about to where your big extended family village and seeing that flood and fill our city and the world would be the thing that we care about most. God, that we would want to center our lives on you getting more and more worship, which you deserve, and we'd give our whole lives to it. Whatever it costs, God, whatever the pain is, whatever we've inherited, that we're going to have to face some hard stuff and deal with it. And that's going to be costly. It's going to cost some energy maybe and some time or just some introspection and reflection. God, whatever it is, would you help us? Spirit, help us to see like you see to repent and to walk in the beautiful new way of life, the new family that you've invited us into. We pray it all in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.